So we are now still in, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 10, part 2 here, the whistle of God, the whistle of God. And we said last week that there needs to be a turning to the Lord. We need to turn away from false idols. And we talked about what those idols can be, any patterns of thought and behavior that are not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ are idols in our lives. So there's a turning, and we constantly do this. We're constantly readjusting for our whole Christian life. We're constantly saying, Lord, turn me back to you. And there should be within the Christian's heart a recognition of wandering. So once we come to Christ, we stop permanently wandering, but there's still a sense within the Christian's heart that says, Lord, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, my heart is prone to wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And the greatest saints, the, the greatest men and women of God, come before the Lord and they say, Oh, Lord, help me. My heart is wandering in this area. God, would you bring it back underneath your lordship? Lord, help me to think rightly. Help me to bring every thought captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is a real deal. Christianity is real. This isn't a game. We're not playing here. This, isn't, uh, this is not Christianity for fun. When we're talking about breaking chains, we're talking about real chains. When we're real spiritual chains. When we're talking about Christ, we're talking about a true living Lord. You know, when somebody comes to Christ and they turn to Christ from, for the first time and that veil is dropped, it's not just a serious prayer to nobody. Lord, I pray that you would save me and you know, I'm very sincere about this. That's not salvation. Somebody could be sincere all day long in their address, but unless they understand that they're actually talking to a person, and it's about Jesus Christ. It's turning away from idols to the living Lord. Then there is no salvation. And those who know Christ for the rest of their lives will continually be coming back to the Lord. Lord, I'm coming back to you again. Lord, I come back to you again. Lord, here I am again standing in need of prayer. Lord, I need others to pray for me and I need to be praying. And so, Lord, I come to you and I place myself at your feet. And we need praying people. We need people who know how to pray. And there's a, there's a lifestyle that is developed. And we become more mature in the faith as we learn and develop our, our ability to pray. And so we begin with baby talk, and as we develop in the things of the Lord, we, we become more like Jesus, and we learn to pray better and deeper and more meaningfully. And there's a desire for us to turn to him and say, Oh, Lord, as this text says, will, will you water my soul? Lord, I turn to you, verse 1 there, Lord, I turn to you for, for water. And now the Lord has a problem with the leadership in Israel. Some scholars have said that this is uh, the pagan leaders that the Lord is talking about, those 
secular leaders and tyrants who had taken over Israel. You had Assyria in 722 BC, and then of course you had Babylon in 586, and there were many other pagan leaders all the way down through Rome who had oppressed the people of Israel. But it seems better to understand this as the leadership within Israel, civil leaders, governors, kings, but also religious leaders, priests, those who would put themselves in the office of prophet and prophesy falsely, religious leaders. The Lord tells us here that he is hot against the religious leaders. His anger is hot against them because they don't truly care about the people. They don't care. The difference between a true shepherd and a false shepherd is love, is, is care. And false shepherds don't really care about the people. In fact, they don't care if the people are skinned. The sheep can be skinned. That's okay with false religious leaders. By the way, he could be talking here about leaders at this time, but also as he's going to talk here about this millennial kingdom, he's talking about false religious leaders of all time that have oppressed the people of Israel, the Jewish leaders. Think about Jewish leaders today. Rabbis, those who would say, do not follow Christ. What are, what are they doing? They are leading people down a, a false apostate religious road. There are many Jews who are today turning to the Lord, but many, many Jews are still not. And so God comes to the point of where he says, my, my anger here, look at verse 3 with me, my anger is hot against the shepherds. Those religious leaders then, those civil leaders then that are oppressing the people, they don't care about the people. And he says, I will punish the male goats. That's literally what it says here in the Hebrew. I will, I will punish the male goats. It's often translated here as leaders. I will, I will punish the leaders. I'm against the, the leadership of Israel. I'm against the civil authorities and I am against the religious authorities. They are leading the people astray. Here's the difference. Here's where we see the dichotomy between those who do not care about the Lord and, and true leadership who does. He says this, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. There it is. He cares for his flock. In other words, those who are leading Israel astray, those Leaders, those Jewish leaders who are in charge, do not genuinely care for the flock of God, but are leading them astray in that they do not care about the people. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. The Lord will take these sheep and he will turn them and he will change them where they were cowardly and they were wandering and they were afflicted. They will now someday, and we are still waiting for this wonderful time, they will be regathered and they will become a majestic steed ready for 
battle. But the false leadership did not care about the people. They did not care about the people in that they tolerated or they allowed false gods. Hey, whatever you want to believe, that's fine. It's all about love. It's all about tolerance. It's all about as long as it's true for you, that's okay. And the world applauds. They say, isn't that so loving and isn't that so caring? At a person recently this week, he said that he was reading some famous religious leader. He thought this was so wise. He said that this religious leader said that no religion is an island to itself. And that's the kind of thinking that the world applauds. In other words, what he was really saying is there is no truth. There might be a little truth here and a little truth there scattered abroad with the different religions, but there is no one real truth. I was tempted to ask him, I wanted to ask him this, is that true? Because as soon as somebody makes a statement like that, they're making a truth statement. And the question needs to be asked, is that true? But we hear this kind of thinking all the time. And so we, we think of oftentimes people who think of uh, people have no shepherd. The shepherd doesn't care. The shepherd's uh, playing video games while the sheep are wandering, playing by the cliff. And uh, we say, what a, what a loving, what a caring shepherd. He just allows us to do whatever we want. We can think whatever we want. We can go wherever we want. We can do whatever we want. That's just fine. And uh, in the meantime, the sheep are getting in more and more trouble. This is why when we think about the psalmist, he says this, I love your law, Lord. Lord, you take care of me. Lord, it's your word that, that guards me. Lord, you're the true shepherd who cares about me. False shepherds come along and they say, listen to whoever you want. Do whatever you want. Listen to any false dream that comes down the pike. That's okay. If people are telling you things are going to be great, things are going to be wonderful, follow your own heart, follow your own dreams, all this kind of stuff. That's exactly what it's saying there in verse 2. They tell false dreams. What are these false shepherds doing? They're saying, follow your own desires, follow your own wants, and the crowd is applauding. Aren't these people loving? Aren't these people wonderful? Aren't these leaders fantastic? But they're not fantastic leaders. They're allowing the sheep to be skinned. They're allowing the sheep to wander. They're allowing the sheep to be afflicted. Then there are those kind of false leaders who give a false path to the true God. So some, some leaders, some false leaders, tolerate or allow false gods in others give a false path to the true God. This is like the Pharisees in the New Testament times with Jesus. They believed in the true God. But they burdened the people. They weighed the people down with their own laws and their own regulations and their own stipulations. If you want to get to God, if you want to know God, you've got to obey this and you've got to do this and you've got to carry this out. And the people were weighed down with the rules of self-appointed apostate leaders. 
And God comes along and he says, listen, my anger, talk about the wrath of God. We talk a lot about the love of God. God is a God of love. And we understand 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is love. But he's also a God of anger. And one of the things that he despises is leadership that leads people astray. Leadership that doesn't care about truth. Leadership that doesn't care about sound doctrine. Leadership that does not care about the true experience of the Holy Spirit. The Lord comes along and he says, these leaders are not loving, they're not caring. The leadership that allows the sheep to do whatever they want, go any place that they want, and wander all over the place are leaders that will allow the sheep to be afflicted. And he says, for this cause I will punish these leaders, and I'm going to raise up a true leader. Notice what verse 4 says here. So he is showing the difference between false leadership and now he brings us to a true leader, a leader that will lead the people in righteousness, a, a leader that will lead the people in truth, a, a leader that will lead the people in mercy. Speaking here very clearly of one person in particular, it says for, from him, speaking of Judah, from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, shall come the cornerstone. Well, who's this talking about? He's just talked about false leadership. Now he's talking about this true leader that is going to come from Judah. And he's going to be like this foundation stone. In ancient times, they had this cornerstone. It would be this stone that was laid as a foundation stone. And other walls, other stones were measured against it. It was an extremely important stone. It says, from Judah is going to come this leader who is foundational. On him is going to be the weight of the total edifice. He is going to be the thing that everything else in the house is measured against. He is the cornerstone. Who, who is this cornerstone that this text is talking about? Why don't you flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. In fact, why don't we go back very quickly to verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this, the picture that's being drawn here is the church is like a house. And there's all sorts of different pieces within the house. There are the studs and the shingles and all these different parts. But then he gets down to the foundation here of this house, and he says that the whole house is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. By the way, this is why we uh, take issue when somebody comes along and says that there's an apostle here or an apostle there. You know, the scripture tells us, here, there, there is apostolic ministry today, but there are no foundational apostles any longer. How do we know that? Because verse 20 here says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the question is, how many times do you lay a foundation? Well, we only lay a foundation in the house or any kind of building one time. 
And so the foundation here is the apostles and prophets, but then it tells us who the chief cornerstone is. It says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here in the Old Testament, we have this text saying from Judah is going to come this cornerstone, this genuine true leader who's not going to afflict the people, but who is going to guide the people. And he's the cornerstone. But he doesn't only say he's the cornerstone here in verse 4, but he says in Zechariah 10 verse 4 from him, the tent peg. So here's another name for our Lord. Not only is he the cornerstone, but he is the tent peg. And when we think of a tent peg, we can actually in the Hebrew here, it can mean a couple of, of different things. The first kind of tent peg is one that we would think of. When we have a, a tent that we're setting up, and we want to keep the tent tethered to the ground. On the outside, we take these, these stakes and we stake it to the ground. We take the little piece, pieces of cloth that are on the outside of the tent, the little loops, and we hammer them with a stake to the ground. By the way, uh, sometimes during Kingdom Bound in New York, nothing is as frustrating as trying to nail tent, tent pegs into the ground. I can't tell you how many of those things I've bent trying to hammer them in. In fact, every year I say to myself, I need to get better tent pegs. And finally did this past year, got some like commercial grade ones. They bent the others. So that's one kind of tent peg uh, that can be talked about. But there was another kind of tent peg that I believe that the scripture here is talking about, and that was a, a center peg like a stake that was hammered into the ground in the center of the tent next to one of the main poles. And on this peg, all sorts of utensils would be hung. And so people who stayed in the tent would hang their cups and their various other utensils, their valuables on this tent peg. And so you have this, this peg that is hammered, this long stake that is hammered into the ground, a tree-like stake. And uh, you would put all sorts of different things, valuables and goods, cups and different dishes on this tent peg. And so the question is, which, which tent peg is he talking about here? It seems like he's talking about this center tent peg that holds all sorts of goods. We see this thought, if you flip back to Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 22, verse well, we'll start in verse 21, Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 21. He's talking here about Eliakim. You can see that back in verse 20. And he says this, And I will clothe uh, him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. So you can imagine Eliakim now. Now something is being placed here on his shoulder. There's something weighty being placed on him. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now here, here's where we get to what we're talking about here. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. 
and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Notice verse 24. And they will hang on him the whole honor. They will hang on him. So they're hanging on something, that is this peg, represented by Eliakim. They're hanging on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue, every small vessel. Here it is. All, all the vessels are being hung on this peg. From the cups to all the flagons, everything is being hung on him. And so now we come here with a little context. We understand here what Zechariah is talking about. He's saying our Lord is like a peg. And on him are all the utensils going to be hung. And the question to us is, what, is, what does he mean by that? We could say all the glory, all the majesty, all the weight of glory, all the weight of majesty is definitely going to hang on Christ. But could we get more specific? Could he be talking here about something even more than that? What are these utensils that are hanging on Christ? Him being that peg that holds the whole thing up. In fact, we know that the text of Scripture tells us that the Lord holds up all things in the universe by the word of his power. So we could say it's the whole universe. The Lord is is keeping everything in place. He's keeping everything going. The, the whole weight of everything we see, the sun, the earth in its orbit, all being commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, all the scientific laws are simply in place, simply at the command of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord could uh, speak one word, and he could hurl our earth out into another orbit if he wanted to. We tend to think everything is just kind of fixed, and sometimes if we're not careful, we can become deists with God is just kind of out there, and we are just existing in this scientific universe that simply runs on itself. That is a very scary thought. And Talk about the thinking of a false god, the thinking that we have become God, these little puny clumps of dirt as we are thinking that uh, this whole thing runs on and by itself. That's simply not true. But can we even get more specific? What is it that hangs on Christ? So beautiful how the Old Testament is always pointing us to Christ over and over again. He's the cornerstone. Everything rests on him. He's the foundation. Everything's aligned according to him. Now here he is as the tent peg. All the utensils hang on him. All that is useful hangs on him. Think about um, cups or other pots and pans. Sometimes you go into a person's house and you'll see uh, different things just like this, apparatus where they have mugs that are hanging from, or, or pots and pans, useful utensils that are hanging on these different pegs. So we can say, well, the, the Lord is like a tent peg and all these different utensils are hanging off of him. I think 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us some kind of clue as to even what it means here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you flip over there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I 
2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 20, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. So there's all sorts of different kinds of vessels in the house. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel. He. What's he saying here? Every Christian is a vessel. Every Christian is a, a different kind of cup. So here we are, vessels in the master's house, being hung on this tent peg for honorable and useful service. What a challenge to think about. Lord, you want to use us. Lord, Lord, everything revolves around you. You're the one holding us up. Well, Lord, do you want to use us? It reminds us of when Jesus said, I am the vine. I am the vine, and you are, you are the branches. He could say it like this. I am the tent peg, and you are the utensils. And I want to use you for, I want to use you for my glory. I want to use you for honorable use. Notice what it says here in verse 21. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Lord, whenever you want to grab me as the mug off of that peg, Lord, use me in any way you want. Lord, I might not be the fanciest cup that you have. I might not be the golden mug, but Lord, I just want to be used by you. God, I'm so thankful. Thank you, Lord, for Holding everything up, Lord, thankful, so thankful that you're like this, this tent peg in the center of a tent, holding all of the valuables up, ready for every good work. We said that all the majesty and glory hangs upon Christ. And as we, as these utensils are being used for the master's use, we we don't radiate our own majesty and we don't radiate our own glory, but we radiate as his, his vessels. We radiate his glory. This is why Jesus could say something like, I am the light of the world. And then he would also say, you are the light of the world. How can that be? If he's the light and we're the light, are we the true lights? No, we are simply, we are simply reflecting his light. The other day, Ethan and I were talking about the moon. He said, Dad, look up at the moon. He said, look how bright it is tonight. And we began to talk about how God gave that to us as an illustration of what he says in the word. He actually put this at the center of creation to illustrate a truth for us, that he is the sun. He is the light, and we are the light as well, but we simply reflect his glory. We simply reflect his light as secondary lights. We are not the generators of the light, but we are the reflectors of the light. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're the reflectors of his glory. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So here we are as Christians, and we get to behold the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed, it says here, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here we have glory, but it's not our glory, it's the glory of the Lord. In fact, that's what it says here at the end of the verse. For this comes from the Lord, this glory, this glory that we have, but it's not intrinsic to us, it's not our glory. For this glory comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so here we have Zechariah telling us, here's going to be this true leader, this genuine leader. He's going to be the cornerstone. He's also going to be the tent peg. But lastly, he's going to be the battle bow. This is talking about the fact that when the Lord comes, especially when he comes the second time, he's going to come as a warrior, one who is, one who is ready to fight. Revelation chapter 19 gives us a clear picture here of what it's like when we talk about the Lord, our battle bow. We've talked about the Lord being a, a mighty warrior, the one who fights our battles for us. And here's more language just like this. When he comes and he comes to set up this millennial rule, this millennial kingdom, he will come as a mighty warrior as one who fights like a soldier, the greatest soldier of all time, the most decorated. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and let's read several of these verses because it gives us such a, such a beautiful picture of the Lord, our warrior. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Hmm. Now it gets interesting here as far as warrior talk. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. He is the battle bow. From him, our text here says in Zechariah 10, from him, every ruler, all of them together, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. So when the Lord comes back, there's going to be a massive battle. His enemies are going to be defeated. By the way, this, this does not mean that every enemy is going to be slaughtered and killed. But it is going to be a bloody battle. 
They shall be, verse 5, like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. But who's going to be there for all of this? After all, Judah has been scattered. They were scattered in 722. They were scattered again in 586. They were scattered because of unbelief. And by the way, in large part, they remain scattered today, although we have begun to see which we believe is the beginning of prophetic fulfillment of 1948 when Israel is regathered as a nation, but they were scattered. And uh, the diaspora, Jews scattered all over the, the world, talking roughly 2,700 years. That's a lot of years to be scattered. They were brought back in measure, but never to the, the measure or the fulfillment of what is prophesied here. J.C. Ryle, back in the 1800s, when he was talking about Israel, he wrote this. He said that the Jews are a scattered people. And then he gives the reason why. He says the Jews are a scattered people because of their many sins, their hardness and stiff-neckedness, their impotence, their impenitence and unbelief, their abuse of privileges and neglect of gifts, their rejection of prophets and messengers from heaven, and finally their refusal to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the King's own Son. These were the things which called down God's wrath upon them. They were the causes of their present dispersion. So you have hardness of heart, impenitence, unrepentance, all of these things have caused their, their scattering, and yet the Lord says, I'm going to gather them back in. And by the way, no gathering that we see here, when they started to come back under Cyrus, and then they come back under two more waves, none of those regatherings fulfills what the text of Scripture is talking about here. So what the text of Scripture is talking about here is something still future. It's not past. In fact, the regathering of, of Israel in the first wave that had come back from uh, under Cyrus in Persia was about 50,000 people. This regathering that our text is talking about is something much larger. J.C. Ryle once again says this. He says, few if any of the ten tribes appear to have returned from Assyria. Not 50,000 of Judah and Benjamin came back from the captivity of Babylon. So the Lord says there's going to be this mighty battle that Judah is going to be restored. And yet you have to have a people back in the land for this battle to happen. The question is, when is this going to happen? Look with me at Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6. So you have this, this prophecy of this regathering. He says this, I will strengthen the house of Judah. So the Lord says here, I, I, I'm going to prophesy, I'm going to bring back the house of Judah. I'm going to do something with Judah. Even though they've come back in part, this is not the fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, and I will save the house of Joseph. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the, the northern kingdom. So he's saying, I'm going to restore the southern kingdom. I'm also going to restore 
the northern kingdom, but neither one of these things has happened finally in history. He says, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. So what is he saying? I'm going to bring back the southern kingdom. I'm going to bring back people from the north, that is the house of Joseph. I'm going to have compassion on them. Who is he talking about? He's talking about actual Israelites. He's talking about actual Jewish people. We, we must not spiritualize this. We wouldn't say that Israel was uh, scattered literally, but they won't be regathered literally. That doesn't make any sense. If he has scattered them literally, which he has done, he will also regather them literally. This for I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I have not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be as glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Now here's where the center of our text is in verse 8. I will whistle for them. And the original here can mean hiss or signal. But the best interpretation is right here. The best translation is right here. I will whistle for them. Just like sheep. He says, I'm going to whistle for Israel and I'm going to regather them in their land. Listen, for 2,700 years this hasn't happened. And all of a sudden, in 1948, we begin to see the regathering of ethnic Israel. Sheep, uh, sheep know their maker. They know their uh, master. We've often heard that uh, sheep are, are dumb, and in many ways they, they can be, but sheep also know the, the voice of their master. And I was, I was watching different videos of sheep because I wanted to know what sheep responded to. And it says here that they're going to respond to a whistle. And I watched this one flock of sheep and uh, the shepherd had simply trained them to respond to, I think it was, here sheepy, sheepy. And as soon as the shepherd said that, here sheepy, sheepy, all of a sudden the sheep start picking up their head, and it was amazing. One after the other starts running to the shepherd. One after another, the whole flock. And so the sheep know their, their master's voice. A, a whistle can just regather them. And the Lord says, there's going to come a time in history, I'm going to regather my people, ethnic Israel. I'm going to bring them back to the land, a real land with a real people, and I'm going to whistle for them, and I'm going to regather them. This is amazing. We're starting to see that in our lifetime, something very special and something very unique is going on. If I can just share something very quickly here before we uh, press on. I'm very concerned very concerned about more and more teaching that says God is done with ethnic Israel. That they're just, you know, they're just the same. He's now replaced them with the church. You hear all sorts of things like replacement theology. He's moved on from Israel, and now he's simply working with the church. I've talked with people. I've um, even written a, a, a pastor I deeply respect on this issue. It's amazing some of the Things that I've heard, things like, you know, Israel is just the same as any other nation with no special call anymore. Listen, that's not what the text of Scripture says. If God has, has scattered them literally, we don't say, listen, all the judgments are for you, Israel, but unfortunately all the blessings aren't. 
And that's what we have to explain to them if that's how we read this text of Scripture. Yeah, when God judged you, he actually judged you literally as an ethnic people, but he's not actually going to regather you. No, no. He says, I'm going to regather them, and I'm going to whistle for them, for I have redeemed them. This book gets more exciting and more explicit as we go along. Listen, verse 8 here. And they shall be as many as, as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them uh, from the land of Egypt, that is in the south. And I will gather them from Assyria, that is up north, all the way into Turkey. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to, the, and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles, that is Israel shall pass through the sea of troubles. And strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. If there's anything we can do, it's pray for Israel. Lord, bring your people back. Just because a Jew is a Jew by birth does not make them saved. They need to turn and see the Messiah as their Lord. But I want to close with this even though this is specifically talking here about Israel. Jesus talks about all those who trust in him in this way. In John chapter 10, flip with me to one last verse. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 27. Let's go back to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, listen, you, you can know who I am just by looking at my works. If you don't believe my word, you should just believe my word, but my works bear witness about me. He says this, but if you do not believe, it's because you are not part of my flock. So he says, if you're standing there listening, he's the great shepherd, just like we see in Zechariah chapter 10. He's the shepherd of Israel, but he's the shepherd of all of his people, all those who believe. And it's all those who believe in the Messiah, Jew and Gentile, from the ancient times, times of old, all of those people. Somebody was recently asking me, he said, well, how are people in the Old Testament saved? You're saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We said that uh, you had, they had to look forward to the coming Messiah and put their trust in him. They were looking forward to him. Yes, we haven't seen him, but we believe that the Lord is sending Messiah, and we believe in that Messiah. In Christ's day, they were looking right at him. Jesus said, if you believe me, you know God, you know the Father. So people, there were people who were actually looking right at Christ. They had the choice to believe in him or not. Now, 2,000 years later, we look back to the Messiah and we believe. But it's all on the Messiah's shoulders. It's all on him. Everybody who has ever been saved, Jew or Gentile, has been saved through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he says, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. Listen, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. But you're either a sheep or a goat. And Jesus says, if you truly believe, you are part of his flock. And he says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me. The shepherd's voice. Those who believe in Christ know his whistle. They know what it sounds like to hear him speak to them. I'm putting, I'm putting my voice to you that you would hear. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the whistle of God. His sheep, Jew, Gentile, know his whistle. They know his call. And you can't stop with all the forces of hell. You cannot stop a sheep from coming to Christ if Christ has called him. They will come through hell and high water. They will come after Christ no matter what. Because they've heard him and they know his voice. My sheep know my voice and they come. Can I ask you one question as we close? Do you know the shepherd's voice? The voice of the shepherd. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who is the shepherd. He's not just our shepherd. He's Israel's shepherd. And we know this because Zechariah told us so. We know that when he talks about the cornerstone, when he talks about the tent peg, when he talks about the battle bow, he's talking to Israel about their Messiah, and those three things are talking about specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. He's their Messiah. But Lord, he's not only their Messiah, he's also our Messiah. And Lord, sometimes we kind of get this backwards. We, we forget that the new covenant was made with the house of Judah, with Israel. We have been grafted in. And God, I pray, even according to Romans 11, that we would not become arrogant and boast against the root. Lord, you have grafted us into the people of God with one Messiah, with one people, yet with distinctions. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your voice, that you speak to us and that we can hear your voice, that we can know the shepherd's voice, the voice of Jesus, even though we have never seen him. We've never seen Christ in the flesh, and yet we know his voice. How is it possible for us to love somebody from 2,000 years ago? It's because he's still alive today. And we hear him through the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would speak. Lord, I pray if there's one here that doesn't know you, a lost sheep, that you would find that sheep today. That they would come home. Come home to Christ, I pray. If you're standing here, if you don't know the Lord, maybe, maybe you've said prayers before, but you don't know Christ. And it's amazing, he, he speaks so powerfully through his, his word, but you don't know Christ, and you want to receive him, you want to actually believe on him, to be saved. We give opportunity here in this small gathering, you just say, yes, today I want to make a stand, I want to hang on the tent peg, that's for me. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, I just need Christ today, first time. Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we worship you. We worship you today. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for your prophetic word. Thank you, Lord.